Well, again, good morning. My name is Jaime Jimenez, um, and I'm a visiting pastor, and um, and I'm not going to be preaching from the book of Romans. So um, I'm going to be sharing this morning from the book of Jonah in the Old Testament, uh, chapter 1, uh, just the first three verses. So if you have a Bible, then you can uh, look for the book of Jonah, which is a very short book. But if not, you can just hear the, the reading of God's word. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed to Tarshish to flee from the Lord. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, as we meditate in your word, I pray that your spirit may give, give us eyes to see. Give us receptive, receptive hearts to your word and draw us closer to Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. The story of Jonah is uh, probably one of the most well-known stories of the Bible, at least the part of the story where a gigantic fish uh, eats Jonah only to vomit him a few days later. And many people think the story is a parable or fiction whose main purpose is to teach us that if we disobey God, a huge whale may come out of nowhere to eat us. And even though sometimes we wish we could use it that way to make sure that our kids will behave, that is not the message of this book because that is not the message of the Bible. And it is not fiction because the Bible doesn't treat this story as a parable. The Old Testament mentions Jonah in another place, the book of Kings, as a prophet who served during the reign of King Jeroboam II on the 8th century before Christ. But the introduction to the book of Jonah doesn't give us much information about Jonah, probably because he was a well-known person back then. Basically, what we know about him is that he was a prophet. But what did it mean to be a prophet in the Old Testament? Well, in, in very simple terms, a prophet was someone sent by God to faithfully communicate a message from God to the people of God. Let me repeat that again. A prophet was someone sent by God to faithfully communicate a message from God to the people of God. In some cases, the message included information about other nations, but as, prophet, as, as Pastor Tim Keller once observed, never had a prophet of God had been sent to preach to other nations, like in the case of Jonah, who is sent for prophet, was to admonish the people of God for not living as the people of God. We can think of the Old Testament prophets as prosecutors who brought charges against the people for not living according to God's covenant. And just like modern-day attorneys, the prophets will build their cases against Israel or Judah by using their story as evidence to show how God had not failed on any of his good promises with Israel um, and Israel, on the other hand, had a record of continuous rebellion. Therefore, the prophets preach about judgment. But the prophets were more than prosecutors. They also preach hope and repentance. The prophets call 
the people of God to return to the Lord. Return to the Lord. And they brought hope by speaking about a day when God will send someone them and to give them a new heart. Now, what is interesting here is that Jonah doesn't seem to fit that profile that I just described. He's not a normal prophet. The book begins, just as the story of any other prophet, by saying the word of the Lord came to Jonah. But normally, after such introductory words, we will expect to find a message that God wanted the prophet to communicate, right? However, in this case, the message is quite brief. It's just a few words, and it's actually for Jonah. And even more surprising is the fact that it is about preaching not to Israel or Judah, but to their worst enemy, the Assyrians. So we might think then that the book of Jonah is primarily a call to repent. It's not primarily a call to repent and return to the Lord, but a mission to the Assyrians, or about the mission to the Assyrians first with Israel and their need to repent. So I will argue that in the book of Jonah, God is actually addressing his people, however, not through a direct sermon, but through a story, a story in which they will see themselves. Now, there are other parts of the Bible where this happens. In the book of Samuel, for example, we read the story of another prophet named Nathan who confronted King David, and he did that by telling him a made-up story you might remember if you know that, if you have read it. It's a story about two men, one very rich, one very poor. The rich man had lots of sheep and cow, cows, I'm sorry, while the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought and raised with much love and care. But one day, the rich man received a visitor, and to show him hospitality, instead of sacrificing one of his many animals, he decided to take away the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and offer it as a meal. When King David heard that story, he burned with anger against the man, saying, that man must, must, who did this must die. But then Nathan turned the story back to David as if it were a mirror and told him, you are that man. Because King David had taken the wife of one of his soldiers. So probably there was a long thing here with the story of Jonah. The story is like a mirror where the people of Israel have for them because it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. So I'm giving a lot of introduction, I know, but with this perspective in mind, I would like for us to briefly consider two things in these opening verses, uh, perhaps as an introduction to, for the whole book, in case you would like to go home and read it. First, it teaches us that God is a missionary God, and secondly, it teaches us that God wants us to participate in his global mission. So God is a missionary God, and God wants us to participate in his global mission. So first, God is a missionary God, verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. <clears throat> the first thing we read is that God speaks to Jonah and commands him to go and preach to the Assyrians. Now, for many years, when I read these words, my natural tendency was to focus immediately on that commandment that God gives Jonah. Go and preach. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. It proves that God cares about sending people to those that do not know him yet. Well, yes, that's true. But if, if that's all we see, we probably won't get it. It probably won't move us. We need to pause for a moment and take a step back 
if we want to hear the story correctly. In the Bible, we learn that God's commandments always reveal something about his character. And we also learn that God always expects us to obey them based on his grace and what he has done for us. And when we forget this, we end up thinking about God's commandments as random commandments and as burdensome rules to observe. That's not what they are. So let's take a step back and think uh, from a big picture perspective about what's going on here. If you are familiar with this book, or again, if you go back home and read it, you will soon realize that the prophet of God is not an exemplary character. The more you read about Jonah, the more you realize how selfish he was. He didn't care about others. He was a stubborn, disobedient prophet. He even preferred to die than to see his enemies be forgiven. He was not a gracious person. Little by little, the story begins to unfold Jonah's heart, and it's not a pretty picture. He was so selfish that he wanted God to follow his agenda. I think Pastor Keller uh, once said that Jonah wanted God to adapt to his own plans and desires. But as we unravel Jonah in the story, so to speak, we also begin to distinguish another picture that is being sketched throughout the book. And it is the picture of a God whose grace is so deep and so sufficient and whose love and faithfulness are so persistent that he doesn't give up on Jonah. God certainly care about the Assyrians, so don't get me wrong, but again, that's kind of a secondary plot. What should strikes us first is that he cares about someone like Jonah, the stubborn runaway prophet, and yet God pursues him and pursues him and pursues him. And if we think about it for a second, God didn't need to go through all this trouble with Jonah. After Jonah decides to go in the opposite direction where God was sending him, God could have called another person that will obey immediately. But that's not what he does. God seeks after him, not because he needs Jonah, but because he loves Jonah and wants to change his heart. He desires Jonah first to repent and return. And in order to accomplish that, God gives him a task that the prophet didn't like, but that's exactly what he needed. And it's not an easy task for sure, it was not. Jonah probably thought he could die because to say that the Assyrians were evil is not strong enough. They were practically a terrorist state. The Assyrians were well known for their cruelty. Assyria was the symbol of terror and tyranny in the ancient Near East for more than three centuries. Now, in Jonah's time, the Assyrian Empire was not at its peak, but eventually they will recover and will take Israel into exile. So most likely, Jonah knew that was a possibility, and, and maybe that's why he didn't want them to be spared, because what he feared the most was the probability or the possibility that the Assyrians will repent and be forgiven by God. <clears throat> so Jonah tried to run away, but God sent a storm to pursue him. And then when Jonah is thrown into the sea, God sent a big fish, not to punish him, but to rescue him. And then God grew a plant and then sent a worm, 
because he didn't want to let Jonah go. But the question here is, why? Why does God insist on a stubborn prophet? Why? Well, because he is a missionary God who seeks and saves the lost. This is the character of God portrayed throughout the Bible. When Adam sins, God comes and finds him. When Abraham lives in Mesopotamia worshiping false god, God seeks him out and calls him out. And in the story of Jonah, God wanted Israel to see not only how much they were like Jonah, the stubborn prophet, but also how persistent was his grace and his love for them. He was calling them through the story to repent and return. Repent and return. The book of Jonah is a story that illustrates the words spoken through another prophet named Joel. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The God of the Bible is relentless in pursuing sinners to rescue them. The problem is that we are always trying to run away and hide from him. When my son was a toddler, he's now almost 11, and I had to dress him for church, I will normally have to run every Sunday after him, you know, and then try to put his pants on, and then he'll keep running, and then try to get his shirt on. <coughs> And, and actually, that's the story of us all. We are runners who try hard to get away from God and try to hide, hide behind many things. But God, in his grace, pursues us to clothe us with his salvation, with the righteousness of Jesus. So if you are here today and you know that you are a follower of Jesus, you need to remember that you are not his disciple because you made wise, wiser choices in your life or because you were never that bad anyway, or because you decided to become a better person. If you are a follower of Jesus, it's only because of God's persistent grace. You are the lost sheep that he went out to find you, to bring you home. And when he found you, he rejoiced over you. And unless this picture of God as a missionary God sings into our hearts, it doesn't make much sense to talk about the privilege we have in going and sharing God's grace with others because we cannot keep what we don't have. We need a grasp of God's grace. Jonah knew about God's grace intellectually, but he was not experiencing it. And if God's grace isn't our foundation, telling to us. So we need to say that Jonah's story is also our story. We are runners. Second point. God wants us to participate in his mission. Verses 2 and 3. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and hid it for Tarshish. Jonah is commanded to go to Nineveh, which is modern Iraq, uh, but instead he buys a ticket for Tarshish, which is probably southern Spain. But how is he trying to run away from the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land? 
as he will actually confess in chapter 1? Well, Jonah knows that he could not run away physically from the God who made the heavens and the earth. That would be impossible. He is moving away relationally. But how? Well, by going against God's missionary purpose. In the story of Jonah, running away from God's missionary purpose is not taken taken lightly. It is not described as, okay, voluntary activities that Jonah could have done for extra credit, but he didn't. It's actually described as running away from the presence of the Lord because it goes against who God is. If God is a missionary God, and he intends to reclaim every square inch of his creation. And he wants Jesus to be proclaimed and worshipped by people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And if he wants to bring his salvation to the ends of the earth, and we as his people decide to live for something else, or to live a gospel that is only for us, and for my personal growth, and for improving my life, it is not a small or secondary thing. God wanted his people to be a light to the nations through which others will come to know and worship him. And they were not being that. So we need to read the story of Jonah with this primary issue and warning in mind. God chose a people for the sake of making his glory known among the nations. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Christopher Wright, um, I, I love his books. He affirms in one of his books that Jesus did not give a mission to the church. He formed a church for his mission. So mission is not just something that we add. It's the reason why we exist, to bring him glory, to worship him. We are a people rescued for that purpose, to bring glory to God. Therefore, as Leslie Newbegin um, wrote, we need to remember that the church does not exist for itself. It exists for the sake of fulfilling God's purpose for the world. We must seek to make, to confess him to the ends of the earth, to make him known to the ends of, of the earth. Now, um, this doesn't mean that you have to become a cross-cultural missionary or that you have to be in vocational or paid ministry. It doesn't mean even that your main gift will be evangelism. And it doesn't mean that you have to go on mission trip, not necessarily. But it does mean that as individuals and families and as a community who desires to live to worship God, we have to align our purpose in life with God's mission. We have to align it. That includes our particular vocations, whether you are a doctor, a plumber, a stay-at-home mom, a pastor, a teacher. It includes the way we raise our kids and orient, orient them in their dreams and goals. What is life about? It includes our finances, the time we dedicate to our neighbors, the things we pray for. And the question here is, are we living for God's mission? Um, Michael Frost, uh, he's an Australian missiologist. He once used the image of 
movie trailers to describe what it means for the church to live missionally. And he explained, he used, a, well, he used this illustration, that when you go to a theater, uh, before the film begins, uh, there is a series of trailers or previews of the upcoming releases. And normally those trailers will have like the best scenes of the upcoming movie so that people will come out thinking, oh, I want to come back and see that movie, right? Well, in a similar way, if um, the church is living for its mission of purpose, people should see the Christian community and think, I want to see the world they come from. Because to quote New Begin again, the church is to be a sign, a fortress, and an instrument of God's kingdom. So we announce that the king has come and will come again. We embody the new life under his rule. And we are instruments in bringing about some of the justice and some of the peace and some of the healing that will be complete when Jesus returns. Or missional identity. How can we live for God's mission? How can we embrace our missionary or missional identity? Well, we need to set our eyes on Jesus, the one sent by God to rescue us, because he is the true missionary that we needed. He is the light to the nations. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus explained that he is the one sent by the Father to accomplish this mission of redemption. He was sent to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. He was sent to set the oppressors, oppressed free. He was sent to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He is God in the flesh who came to seek and save the lost. In Philippians chapter 2, we read that Jesus being in the very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And he did that for his enemies because he loved us. That's the good news of the gospel, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst, as Paul the apostle wrote, he loved me and gave himself for me. And only if we know this, and actually to the degree that we experience this, will his mission be compelling to us because he will be compelling to us. Only then will we hold that um, conviction that he must be proclaimed to the ends of the earth, whatever it takes. And only then when we have to count the cost, we will ask, isn't Jesus worthy? And I hope and pray that our hearts will say, of course, of course he is worthy. Let's pray. Jesus, with your blood, you purchase people from every tribe and tongue and nation so that we will be your special possession and live to declare your name among the nations. Help us to live for your glory because you are worthy to receive honor and glory and praise. In your name we pray. Amen.